Our passage this morning is Hosea chapter 8. We're moving through Hosea's prophecy, and we're in the middle section of the book now up to chapter 8. This morning we'll read all the way through chapter 8. And as you're turning there and finding your place and getting ready to hear what the Lord has to say to us through His prophet, I'm amazed at how our liturgy fits together every week. We don't really plan all of this. We know what passage we're going to be in, and then the different pieces just come together. And so look this week for reinforcement of everything that we're going to hear and talk about this morning in different places from our service, like the Lectio reading, Micah 5, 7 through 15. That's another echo of everything we'll hear this morning, our assurance of pardon. And then throughout the songs that we have already sung, there are more echoes of what the Lord gives to us here. Young Christians, young theologians, listen very closely to the word picture that we use this morning. I want you to listen for what God says He is going to do, and then I want you to see if you can hear a difference in what God actually does. We expect one thing, and He surprises us with another thing. See if you can hear both of those things. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior through the prophet Hosea, who had the same name as Jesus, the one who saves. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good and the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be capable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up, and the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. And as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. O Lord Jesus, we have already sung back to you the word that you have just spoken to us. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, but in your love and faithfulness, all that happens works for our good in Christ Jesus. 
And that's what we long to know again this morning. While the storms gather and the clouds swirl overhead, we long to see the smile of Jesus set upon his people. And once again, we ask that you'll allow us to hear the voice of the shepherd through the words of an unworthy servant and make our hearts alive with all that you say to us this morning. For it, we will give you thanks and we ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? On a calm, bright day under blue skies and a winking sun, the prophet Hosea walked out into the streets of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom, and he yelled into a bullhorn, If you have a storm cellar, go there now. And that's why no one likes prophets. They're always ruining an otherwise perfect day for a trip to the lake or a carriage ride through the park or lunch at a street-side cafe. And that's why prophets didn't like being prophets. They're burdened with always having to see what no one else can see. The storm is coming, shouts Hosea. And in the background, cherry blossom branches wave in warm breezes and songbirds chirp. You know the difference between a weatherman and a prophet? The weatherman tells you what to wear. And the prophet tells you it doesn't matter what you wear, your sin is bad and the storm's going to be big. And the forecast in this passage is a tornado, a full-on twister, the kind that makes tornadoes in Oklahoma and Waco seem like gusts. Winds like a wrecking ball tearing through brick and timber and carved stone, punching everything and everyone with debris. The kind of funnel cloud that comes without pity and picks everything up from its place and puts it all back down again, but this time in matchsticks and splinters. But the truly scary part of all of this, according to Hosea, is that this storm starts at the house of God. In verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. The trumpets here are storm sirens. You hardly see it anymore, but when I was a kid, we would run home from school, and on a sunny day, we could turn the TV antenna just right and pick up the broadcast from across Lake Michigan. Wisconsin had all the good cartoons for some reason, and every once in a while, we could get them. And inevitably, in the middle of the good show, there would be an interruption. The test pattern would come on. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test, followed by color bands and a god-awful squawk that no one should ever have to hear, let alone be allowed to broadcast. This time it's not a test. The trumpet signals trouble, and there are vultures circling over the temple of God, which means this is bad, this is very bad. It's carnage and destruction all around. Only just like we did when we were kids. Nobody's listening and nobody's paying attention. We just want to get back to the cartoons. God breathes out His judgment, and it comes like hundred-mile-an-hour winds. 
Probably no passage shows the resemblance between Gomer, Hosea's prostitute wife in Israel, the people of God, and us, the continuing people of God. No passage shows our resemblances to one another like chapter 8. And the giveaway is an obscure mention in verse 5. I've spurned your calf, Samaria. In other words, I hate your calf. What calf? The verses and phrases right before give the clues. Israel had made for itself a statuette, an idol, and they worshipped it. It was a bull, much like the one that they forged for themselves at Mount Sinai. In the ancient Near East, the bull was the symbol of strength and sexual potency, Two qualities Israel was desperate to be known for. Two things it was desperate to be reputed for. Two very gomerish qualities mixing to form this libertine independence of distrust and unbelief. But you realize what Hosea is showing us in all of this. He's giving us a glimpse into the religion of self-help. This is what it looks like. This is an ancient version of it, but it's no different in our time. The religion of self-help is alive and well. You don't have to look very far to find all kinds of resources, books, DVDs, CDs, weekend seminars and retreats, specials on PBS during the pledge drive. Self-help is a multi-billion dollar industry, but it makes for a lousy faith. And throughout this passage... God says, the more we help ourselves, the farther we move from Him. There's a whole list of the ways this is true in the chapter. In verse 4, they've made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, and I knew them not. And with their silver and their gold, they made idols for themselves. Kings to rule their lives, figurines to rule their hearts. Fleshly kings instead of spiritual kings. False gods instead of the true God. And then down in verse 11. The people have multiplied altars. But they're altars not for cleansing and purification and reconciliation and consecration. They're altars of self. For the heaping up of sins. And verse 12. Were I to write my laws for them by the ten thousands. Were I to write my laws so prolifically that everywhere they turned, my laws came up before their eyes, still my people would look at them glassy-eyed and confused. And in verse 13, they sacrifice to me, but they sacrifice from fullness and not from emptiness. And that's what makes them false sacrifices. They gorge themselves on their sacrifices of pride, and I can't stomach their sacrifices. They don't need me, says the living God. They fill up their own temple, and the encapsulation of it all is verse 7. Their religion of self-help is a religion of wind. It's a blustery nothing. An emptiness that produces only more emptiness. Well, if they want wind, I'll give them wind. 
And so Hosea stands out in the street giving his prophetic weather forecast while everyone around looks to unthreatening skies and they shake their heads and laugh at him and mutter under their breath, fool prophet. It's Halloween, so I'll tell you a Halloween story. When my brother and I were kids, we bought tickets to go into a haunted house. It wasn't your typical haunted house. This one was in operation year-round. It was a two-story white Victorian, and all the windows had been blacked out in it. And we went inside, and it wasn't at all what we expected. We thought we'd move from room to room and see these ghoulish scenes and macabre stagings, but that wasn't what it was. It was a maze that ran through the whole house in utter darkness with one guy dressed up in a monster costume chasing us and growling at us. And he knew all the shortcuts and the hiding places and we knew none of them. He kept cutting us off and jumping out at us. And once he reached out and grabbed my brother who, in pitch darkness, I'm not sure how he did it, maybe summoning the force... He wheeled on the man in the monster costume and landed a strategic kick. And we heard a oop. And a body hit the floor. And we trampled one another trying to get out of the dark maze. And we came hurtling out of the exit into the sunlit street. And we'd escaped. Now this is scarier. Because... We can see what's coming. And there is no escape, even though we can clearly see what's coming. And the passage tells us what's coming is the justice of a scorned God. The God who is love himself, and he's been told, your love is laughable to us. And so the winds pick up speed and the dark storm clouds of the prophecy promise that because Israel is empty in its hearts toward God, it will also be empty in its bellies. He will take away from the people the harvest in verse 7. The standing grain has no heads. It can yield no flour. And it will take away Israel's status and standing and position in verse 8. Israel is a useless vessel. The Jerusalem Bible translates the phrase, Jerusalem is a crock no one wants, empty and disappointing. What's being said there is, Israel has lost its distinctiveness, given it away. Israel was supposed to be full of God's glory, unique and alluring and captivating among the nations. The nations were supposed to come to Israel and say, tell us about this God. But Israel has joined its neighbors in sin. In pride and gluttony, it looks no different from any of its neighbors. And the sentence is this, Israel will wander like a wild donkey alone. She's hired lovers and allies, and they won't be able to help. God says, my people will be unshepherded and unsaved. The weather report for Israel is bleak. And it raises this question. Why do we not live in an apocalyptic wasteland? That's what's been promised. That's clearly the promise of the text. That clearly fits 
us in the church, that clearly fits the broader culture every bit as much as it fits Israel pictured in the passage. Why have we not been turned to a barren waste? Because we have a God who tells us the truth. But He's not a bad news God. He is the God of good news. It's not just Halloween. It's Reformation Day. Halloween is more fun, but Reformation Day is more important. And one of the things the Reformation recovered for us, which is lost and forgotten in this passage and in our own hearts, one of the recovered pieces is God's sovereignty. We throw those words around an awful lot. We're going to explain them this morning. God has a royal right, a high and unassailable authority to rule all things from and in and for Himself. Meanwhile, we have a warring sovereignty. We want to rule all things from and in and for ourselves. It's a guerrilla sovereignty. But in His true sovereignty, He has ruled that the answer for our guilt in sin is His grace. Which is not what you'd expect, but that's what makes the gospel the gospel. See, the storm clouds are gathering, but the gospel gives a different forecast. So, we sow wind. We scatter the seeds of emptiness in our self-worship, and it turns up a dismal harvest. We reap a whirlwind of deeper, darker nothing, whole lifetimes cut out of the heart of God. But in the midst of it, the Holy One overrules what we choose in our sin. And in His gracious sovereignty, He chooses something other. He chooses His fullness to undermine our emptiness. And He sows into the world His prophet of salvation named Hosea. Saving one. And He sows into the world His word of salvation to turn our hearts. And finally, He sows into the world the Word made flesh. The Savior Himself, His own Son, who was winnowed at the cross and harvested out of the tomb. And the good news is, Jesus was sown like seed into our dust bowl world so that lives eroded and burned over with sin, lives like dry and waterless stalks, could be replanted and made fertile and lush and ripe and blossoming endlessly. Jesus comes to change the fortunes of people who should be left to wear names like Hosea's his own children. Jesus comes to change the standing of people who should have names that sound like the names of the children of Hosea. So, for people who should be called no harvest, now they're called harvest. And for those who should be called barrenness, they're called endless growth. And for those who should be called not my likeness, there is a striking, unmistakable resemblance of godliness given. 
You are my likeness is what they're called now. And the wind that blows from the throne of God is not the wind of devastation. The wind that blows from the throne of God is the wind that's spoken of in John's Gospel in chapter 3. When Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, sneaks off through the night to find Jesus, not wanting to be found out or seen. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Who are you and what do you want? We don't understand any of this. And Jesus says, Of course you don't. You need the Spirit. You need the regenerating wind that blows through calcified, hardened hearts that smashes through strongholds of unbelief, that tears through the fortified walls of death and the rejection of God's love. This wind is the opposite of the desolating wind of judgment. This is the awaking wind, the enlivening wind, the wind of peace instead of the wind of curse. And because this spirit is the tailwind of Christ... The trumpets in verse 1 play a different tune now. They strike a different note. They call out to us, Come to worship. All is forgiven in the Son. Our sacrifice, our replanting, our joyous harvest. The trumpets in verse 1 aren't storm signals anymore. Calling out, take cover. Judgment is coming. The trumpets now sound like a choir of angels standing in the skies over the foothills of Bethlehem, singing, Good news, sinners. Salvation cries for you in the form of an infant who will put right in his own flesh all the wrongs that you delight to pour out of yours. The famine is over. There's going to be a harvest after all. I love the prophets because they have this ability to speak to us in levels and layers. On the surface, there is the simple and the obvious. And then underneath, there are things of lasting depth. And in our chapter, you can hear gale force winds whipping up and swirling splotches of menacing color slide across Doppler radar screens. But for the people of God, This passage whistles whispers of help and hope. Do you see the prophet is saying? We are what we worship. We are what we worship. We are what we worship. And all our versions of self-salvation are tremendously broken looking for salvation in messed up bedsheets. It isn't there. Looking for salvation in an election booth, casting ballots with the fervency of prayers. How ridiculous. Looking for salvation by carving idols out of the qualities we lust after and then genuflecting. If you don't like what you are, Hosea is saying, don't try harder. Do not. Try harder is not the message of Christianity. It has never been. 
It is not the message of the gospel. Try harder is the message of self-salvation. But the message of Christianity and the message of the gospel is change what you worship. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are going to light on me and say, we cannot change what we worship. You're right, we can't change it by ourselves. But if something is stirring in you to change the thing that you love and adore and worship more than anything else, that's not you anyway. The living God has reached in to intervene with His grace and compel you, propel you to change what you worship. Listen, Reformed Christians and theological hobbyists, we don't need to haggle over the procedure of it all. We don't need to remove ourselves from the process and examine it clinically. All we need to do is enjoy what God is doing by His grace in our lives, by participating and submitting to it. And we need to remember this all together because we often forget we are never so smart that we don't have to submit The joy of the gospel for us is in submitting to it. But back to the point. If you look at yourself and you don't like what you see, it's hard to look at. And it makes you dry in the mouth and sour in the stomach. And it makes your heart ache to realize what you've become. And it feels like there's a crushing weight on your chest, pressing all the air out of you when you think about yourself. It's because you worship and adore and give yourself and entrust your heart to the wrong thing. And you're beginning to resemble the image of that thing. That's what worship is designed to do. It makes us more like the one worshipped. If you don't like what you've become or are becoming, change what you worship. And here's how it happened for me this week. I've had a week filled with repenting to my daughter. That's not unusual for me, but this week, the repenting was required with more frequency for all kinds of things, being temperamental and impatient and angry because she doesn't share my sin of perfectionism. That's the really twisted one. Your life would be so much better if you lived in my hell. And finally, at the end of the week, I had to repent for just being a jerk. You wouldn't believe what I did to her, but I did it. And I didn't care. At least not until later. Standing between the crosswinds of deserved judgment and divine grace, the two of those things blowing through my heart at the same time. Oh, you should be blown away by the judgment of God for who you are. And another wind following through saying, But the Savior has been sent for you. Life has been sown for you in the Son. Finally, I had to go to my daughter and I said to her, Look, I know you're tired of hearing me repent, but if I don't, I'll end up worshiping my sin." I'll become my sin more and more. But Jesus won't give my heart to belong to my sin. He wants to use His sacrifice and His rising to make me something new again and again and again. 
and I'm repenting and I'm asking your forgiveness because my sin can't win and be worshipped in my life. Jesus has to win and he has to be worshipped in me. Listen, whatever you do, don't try harder. Trying harder is calling for the winds of devastation to bear down on us like a locomotive. It's tempting the tornado, trying to make peace with it as if such a thing could ever be done. Instead, worship the one who does not ever leave you empty. Worship Jesus who alone has the dynamic sacrifice that cannot disgust the Father. He said it in the passage, I turn all your sacrifices away, they're nothing to me. But the sacrifice of the Son is never disgusting to the Father. And it should become sweeter to us, even while it does its work in us of making us sweeter. Worship Jesus, who is so fruitful, He cannot leave us fruitless. If we are in Him, He will bear His fruit in us. Worship Jesus, who rebuilds our lives to be altars, swept clean of the sacrifices of self, and heaped, piled high with the pleasures of God. The good news is, God doesn't believe in self-help. He believes in sent help, saving help. He believes in a help outside of us, help given by Him. He believes in the sacrifice of the Son on a cross of sin and shame so that people who should be little barren wastelands walking around are turned into little promised lands filled with His grace in His goodness, in His glory. In 1999, in the month of October, the weather report came that a hurricane was headed straight for the Carolinas where Jennifer and I were living at the time. We were doing university ministry, working with Reformed University Fellowship. That news brought the usual panic. People ran to the store and bought up extra batteries and jugs of water, and gasoline for generators. And those who had been through the scenario before boarded up the windows on their houses and got ready for the storm to pound the region. I didn't have anything to board our windows up with, and I didn't feel like going to all the trouble. So the only precaution I took was I had a $20 charcoal grill, and I tied one of its legs to a tree in the yard. I figured, I don't want my grill to blow away. (laughs) Priorities. Meanwhile, on campus, the administration was scrambling. Classes were canceled for the day that the storm was to hit, and safe areas were set up on campus, and students were instructed as to the safe area they were to report to when the storm finally arrived. Everything was ready. We braced ourselves, and we waited. And on the day that the storm was to make landfall, It was a perfect autumn day. The sun was shining. And the temperatures were sensuous. And since the university had already canceled classes, it couldn't call them back into session again. 
and we spent the nicest day of the year sitting outside, talking to students, picnicking with them on the quad, running barefoot through the grass, playing frisbee and football until the sun went down. The punchline of the story is, the storm never came. And for Christians and for the church and for those who have never believed but are starting to believe before you were never interested in believing and for some reason you can't help yourself, you're beginning to believe now. For all of those people, the punchline is the storm's not coming. The whirlwind lost its vengeful breath at the cross. And now the breath of grace alone, the breath of faith alone, the breath of in Christ alone, that's the wind that breathes and blows through us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What we deserve, O Lord, is devastation. And the whirlwind of our deserved devastation pounded your son on the cross. And he was made the barren waste. And we were made the promised fruitful land. Those whom God now indwells with grace for his glory. And it should not be this way, but we are glad that it is. What wonders of your love are these? We did not receive what was ours to inherit. We inherit instead what is not ours by right, but given to us through the justification and adoption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now grow us in it. Grow us in sanctification so that the winds of your grace can clearly be seen and heard and felt to be blowing through us. And forgive us for the times we try to save ourselves with our own self-help religion. There's nothing but desolation to come from it. And we long instead for the love and the tenderness and the care of Jesus the Savior to be given to us and to be given through us as we enjoy it. Stir us to call others to enjoy it with us. Now, O Lord, as we bring our gifts and offerings, we're thankful for all the good gifts you give to us, gifts that we do not deserve, none of them, and gifts which you're not hesitant or reluctant to give, not one of them. You give to us generously because you are a doting father and you refuse to stop loving your children. And we only ask that you'll stir our hearts to deeper gratitude for it and deeper enjoyment of your ceaseless love. Make us joyful givers, joyful ministers. Make us joyful evangelists joyful worshipers and disciples. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.